0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Stephen Ward. He's in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, and he's the author of a recent book, Status and the Challenge of Rising Powers. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, John. Really nice to be here. What's your view about the role that status motivations and status-seeking behavior plays in international politics?
1: So uh, I understand status to be uh, a state's position in the international hierarchy, and um, uh, it's based on uh, performances of consensually valued practices and uh, the possession of of sort of consensually valued symbolic markers. Um, But importantly, it also depends on recognition. So you can't have status uh, unless relevant other actors treat you in ways uh, that imply that you indeed uh, have that status. Uh, and um, so I think uh, status plays uh, uh, a lot of different roles in uh, international politics. Uh, and over the last 20, 30 years, uh, there's been a kind of explosion of research uh, on all the different ways in which status motives uh, matter. Um, a lot of this has to do with belligerence, uh, so. Uh, states that feel undervalued, uh, have been shown to behave more belligerently. Um, some authors, uh, suggest that status motives can also, uh, induce a sort of cooperative or stabilizing behavior, um, that that some states might be motivated to sort of, um, act like good states or sort of uphold, uh, um, norms about different forms of morality as ways of, uh, uh of chasing status. And uh, my own work sort of looks at this uh, in uh, a couple of different ways. The book is primarily about um, uh, a very uh, disruptive uh, uh, form of behavior uh, that status concerns uh, can uh, provoke, um, uh, that states that feel um, uh, sort of uh, permanently blocked Uh, from achieving the status that they think they deserve, uh, sometimes sort of lash out against um, the status quo.
0: How do you, uh, as a political scientist, begin to try to measure status as a causal factor in international politics? It seems harder uh, than some of the other uh, factors that scholars focus on.
1: Well, I actually don't know if that's true. I think it's pretty hard to measure power. Um uh I think that uh status is, is certainly challenging because it is intrinsically uh sort of in the eyes of the beholder, right? So what we care about is not necessarily how you rank uh in terms of uh wealth or military power, but rather uh how the rest of the world sees you. Um uh one of the ways uh, uh that authors have uh done this uh has been to to use diplomatic exchange data um, to try to generate a quantitative indicator uh, of status. So the idea basically is um, that uh, states that attract a lot of diplomatic representatives from other states must be really important so we can construct an indicator on that basis. Um, I've always been a little bit skeptical uh, of that. Uh, and so in 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 a lot of my work, um, I'm less interested in actually measuring status than I am in recovering uh, evidence related to status motives, perceptions of status. Uh, And I'm less interested in uh, understanding associations between uh, status and consistency and different kinds of behaviors than I am in uncovering sort of evidence related to mechanisms uh, through which status concerns um, might
0: influence foreign policy. Okay, so the argument that you lay out in your book hinges on this idea that much of the tension between rising powers and dominant powers is due to the dominant power's resistance to making changes or accommodations that might satisfy the rising power's need for some kind of status recognition. And you make an important distinction in saying that security concerns per se are not primary here. What actually drives the conflict is is more of these collective psychological needs. Um, before we get into some of your case studies, just give us a broad overview of of your theory.
1: Yeah, so the theory basically is um, that so the theory is scoped to rising powers, um, but the dynamics don't necessarily uh, only have to live there. But but um, uh, but so let's talk about rising powers uh, just for sort of purposes of the argument. So the idea is that as um, as uh, rising states become more powerful and sort of more aware of uh, of their sort of clout in the international system they and I'm using they as a shorthand here what I mean is elites who identify with the state and parts of the public that identify with the state and care about the state right um, uh, that they uh, become um, uh, they uh, uh, aspire to um, uh, hold a position or a status that they feel is uh, is sort of appropriate given their, um, their new importance. Uh, and, uh, they kind of borrow, uh, these desires from existing great powers. Um, and, um, uh, and they, uh, do things, um, uh, to try to convince, uh, other powers to take them seriously, to recognize their status claims. Um, and the problems occur uh, when for one reason or another, um, those, uh, status ambitions or status claims seem to be rejected, uh, uh, repeatedly, uh, and often in ways that suggest that there's a kind of a structural or systemic obstacle, um, blocking, uh, the, um, satisfaction of the, of a status ambition. Uh, and that has a couple of kinds of effects, um. It can uh, produce sort of social psychological reactions that lead people to um, uh, to want to protest uh, against and reject the status quo, uh, and so that can operate within the heads of leaders, um, and uh, it can also produce um, can also produce uh, uh, dissatisfaction uh and uh and demands for uh rejectionist foreign policies among important domestic audiences especially audiences composed of uh of sort of strong nationalists uh and so those forces together uh can um uh, given the right circumstances um push states uh into doing things that make very little sense uh
0: in terms of security motives okay so let's dive into a little bit of history here uh... How does this apply to Wilhelmine Germany?
1: So the argument that I make in the book uh, is that um, during the decades before World War I, uh, Germany is a rising power, uh, and um, especially under Kaiser Wilhelm II, becomes sort of obsessed with achieving at least parity with the British. Uh, and, um, uh, and that implies sort of naval parity uh, and being treated equally around the world. Uh, And uh, the British uh, are not really uh, interested in um, accommodating those claims. Uh, And um, this then leads to uh, the uh, emergence uh, of uh, a a group of domestic elites um, uh, that are increasingly sort of convinced that Germany needs to overthrow the European status quo order in order to uh, achieve this, this sort of status ambitions uh, that, it, that, 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 they, uh, that they think are important. Uh, and so this doesn't lead directly to World War I, um, but it certainly produces a, a willingness among some actors uh, to run risks that make that outcome more likely.
0: Uh, you also cover uh, the rise of the United States as a really dominant power in the 1890s. And you discuss uh, the approach that Great Britain at the time took? Uh, what was unique about that?
1: Yeah, so this is a negative case in the book. So it's a case of a rising power that um, that has status ambitions, right? I, th- there's no, no question that some elites uh, care about status in the United States. Theodore Roosevelt cares about status, um, cares about sort of being a great power. Um, uh, not everyone, of course, uh, but there are some influential elites in the United States that care about status. But what's Different about this case uh, is that uh, the British end up accommodating the United States, the British end up accommodating American claims uh, to basically a sphere of influence in uh, the Western Hemisphere. And it's an interesting story. Uh, Part of the reason that the British uh, uh, wind up accommodating American claims, I argue anyway, uh, has to do with stuff going on in South Africa, but also has to do with uh, a sort of notion of a a kind of uh, racial brotherhood. Um, this sort of Anglo-Saxonism um, that means that what could have been a status competition between the United States and Great Britain turns into a uh, a sort of um, common project uh, aimed at uh, advancing the status of Anglo-Saxon civilization in the world. Uh, and this lays the foundation for the sort of emergence of the special relationship.
0: Fast forwarding, talk about the ways you think status might kind of influence American behavior on the global stage. It seems as uh, the kind of dominant power or global superpower or uh, indispensable nation and so forth that we have a lot of uh, status seeking and status motivations going on. How does that manifest in US foreign policy?
1: Absolutely. So, um, this is uh, you're, you're sort of getting outside the bounds of the book, which is fine. Um, uh, this is actually some, some of my, my ongoing work is about decline, uh, and this sort of domestic politics of status anxiety in the context of decline. Um, but there, uh, I, 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 don't think there's any question, uh, that, uh, status concerns inflect American foreign policy. Uh, I'm teaching us foreign policy this, uh, this term, uh, to Cambridge students and, uh, just taught Asan boots, uh, t- uh, recent security studies article. Uh, in which he makes the argument that basically the invasion of Iraq uh, was a performative, an attempt to perform dominance emerging from a a sort of um, a a humiliation after 9-11. And and, uh, this is actually consonant with some other work, right? Jocelyn Barnhart has written about humiliation. Uh, It's possible, uh, actually, that sort of being at the top makes you more prone to concerns about being humiliated, and and so that uh, might actually uh, lead to sort of more status inflected or status anxious belligerent behavior, um, and, and also make it harder to accommodate the claims of a, of a rising power.
0: I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of domestic politics in this story. It seems like one takeaway from uh, your book is that although we tend to think of international conflict as coming down to some kind of incompatible security need out in, in in the international uh, world and or some tangible non-divisible uh, dispute over say territory or something, but actually uh, the dynamics of domestic politics is a very real obstacle to international peace and can often be the driver of international conflict. And we see this kind of unhelpful nationalist populist rhetoric in the United States, which seems to come with really an electoral advantage uh, and therefore seems maybe to be at least in part driven from the bottom up in our own politics. So talk a a little bit about this aspect of of your argument.
1: Yeah. So, um, I I mean, I I would say, not just this book, but my, my 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 sort of work more broadly is very much interested in the domestic politics of status um, of status competition. Uh, so, in the book, I, I argue that actually, um, in, in a lot of these cases that I look at, um, you've got sort of moderate realisty elites uh, who understand um, the s- sort of strategic incentives that their states have to behave moderately. Um, uh, that's the case in, uh, pre-war, pre-World War I, uh, Germany. That's the case in Japan, uh, uh, before 1931. Uh, and that's the case in, uh, in interwar Germany too. Uh, and part of what goes wrong, um, is, uh, that sort of repeated evidence of status and mobility empowers hardliners. Uh, and um, hard and, and their arguments eventually become very difficult to sustainably oppose uh, and that contributes to this sort of shift uh, among these rising powers against the status quo order again in ways that kind of go beyond um, what they needed to do to ensure their security right uh, and I, I, you mentioned the United States, and I, I think um, uh, i 'll just i 'll just uh, talk a little bit about my my um, uh, ongoing unpublished work, um, uh, which is basically that uh, a very similar process happens when states are experiencing decline. Uh, that anxiety about status, um, partly for reasons related to social psychology, drives people apart, drives groups of people apart. Um, some people become very, very committed to restoring the state status. That's these kind of populist nationalists that you're talking about. And some people uh, become uninterested uh, or want to sort of uh, shift resources elsewhere. Uh, And um, uh, this can contribute to domestic conflict, which ultimately makes it harder to adjust to decline uh, in ways that might be sensible um, if we were just thinking about security.
0: Is it possible that America seems to sort of get a lot of status recognition from its outsized role in the world, and therefore any adjustment to that outsized role, any sort of reduction in the number of countries we are treaty-bound to protect, for example, or a rollback in a global military presence and having a a global military base presence, um, those would seem like a hit to status. Those would seem like some kind of psychological hit. Um, and instead of maintaining those commitments in order to protect our security or even global security, we maintain them in order to kind of protect our self-image. Does that make sense? I,
1: I do think that. I, I think there's something to that. Um, I, I I think that um, I think that I would I would uh, not necessarily agree with the notion that the U.S. derives status from its. From its for, from its deployments abroad, for instance, um, I think it's pro- it's definitely true that certain elites think that the U.S. derives status from those uh, situations, uh, and that that and that that certainly this sort of that's all tied up in the logic of primacy and goes back decades and decades. Uh, and at this point, this sort of socialized, as sort of Patrick Porter, you know, puts it, as a, a, an almost habitual attachment, right? Uh, and so you know, are they, are people consciously thinking about uh, the potential status losses that might come if, if you move 4,000 troops out of South Korea or not? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I I would also, I would also note that, uh, uh, Trump, um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about Trump much, but I, um, but, uh, this is really interesting, right? So, you know, Trump's uh, skepticism of the maintenance of basically sort of liberal hegemony or primacy is also status based. Um, if you go back and you look at what he's saying, even as early as 1990, he's basically saying that the liberal international order is a, a, a is for suckers, right? The U.S. is just getting sort of, t- uh, uh, it, it is just getting um, uh, uh, made a fool of uh, by its allies because it's not, it's not squeezing enough out of them uh, in exchange for uh, providing them protection. Um, and that's fundamentally a, a status argument. It's a very different kind of status argument.
0: Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about China. Um, how do you think status-seeking behavior is operating in the U.S.-China relationship?
1: So... I mean, I should preface this by saying that I'm not a China expert. I don't, I don't uh, study Chinese foreign policy, but um, I don't think there's much question that China is status sensitive and has um, uh, aspirations to status parity, at least with the United States, um, and uh, that that is probably not compatible with the maintenance of uh, American dominance in East Asia. Um, so basically, uh, I think the argument that China wants a sphere of influence, they don't put it like that. They would, they would, you know, Chinese leadership would expressly say they don't want a sphere of influence. Um, but I think it's pretty compelling that they, what they're, what they're sort of, uh, uh interested in is effectively a sphere of influence, uh, that spheres of influence are typically seen as privileges that attach to great powers. So their status inflected. Um, and that that's fundamentally incompatible with the role that the United States has played um, since since the end of World War II, uh, and it doesn't seem to be a role that the that um, American leaders are are sort of willing to give up. And it, as you mentioned, maybe that has to do with status, right? Uh, maybe part of the reason um, uh, that um, uh, that American leaders. Uh, are, are sort of talking in ways that suggest that they want to move away from the, the sort of great power sphere of influence model is precisely because the whole world is an American sphere of influence. And why would we want to change that? Um, uh, and, and I think that this this uh, complicates things. Um, so I, I, I think that, uh, for instance, um, uh, you know, t- t- Taiwan is back in the news. Uh, and um, um, Uh, Charlie Glazer, a couple years ago, wrote this really interesting article suggesting that um, the U.S. could improve relations with China by negotiating some kind of a a deal where uh, Taiwan is uh, is, uh, unified, uh, uh, becomes a part of the People's Republic uh, in exchange for um, uh, uh, the Chinese recognizing the legitimacy of the United States uh, military presence offshore. Uh, and that strikes me as, you know, as, as bad as that would be for, the ta- for Taiwan, uh, also as basically unrealistic because it doesn't give enough credit. Uh, it doesn't uh, attend uh, seriously enough uh, to Chinese status ambitions, right? Part of the problem uh, in interwar Germany was um, that uh, the sort of negotiations over the end of reparations and the end of uh, the occupation of the Rhineland um, Uh, Were represented uh, on the German right as sort of Germany being made to purchase what it thought belonged to it by right, Uh, and this strikes me as a similar situation. Um, I I would just also note that status conflicts also complicate efforts to deal with climate change. Um, That there's a sense in which China is being asked uh, to perform as a responsible great power without being given. The rights, uh, 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 the rights and privileges of a great power, at least as that's been understood for a couple hundred years.
0: How do you draw the line between whether or not China just wants to be sort of a member of the great powers club and obtain the, the status that's, that, that that is uh, associated with, uh, or that it seeks more substantive alterations to the existing order? yeah I mean
1: that's a really hard question and and I think probably the the only answer that I can give you is that we have to wait until uh, uh, we have to wait until history has taken its course and then we can write a a fuller analysis um, but this is one of the one of the challenges that I, I i you know I remember going back and forth with my dissertation advisor on you know well if you could write a dissertation telling us exactly when um a kind of uh, moderate revisionist has turned into an extreme revisionist. That would be wonderful. And I just think that that's difficult to do in real time. There are certain things that I would look for. I mean, I think that if China, um, well, interestingly, if China started to do some of the things that the United States was doing under Trump, um, that, would be an, that would be a red flag, right? So if China starts sort of making noise about withdrawing from in- international institutions, um, I think that would be the kind of thing that would get my attention
0: some say that you know the international system as it's been set up and as China has been welcomed into it over the years is greatly beneficial to China and so they they might not want to make substantial changes in, in for the sake of their status and if it's the case that the united states can make accommodations that are kind of kind of surface level and not a huge cost to us national security or global security does it make sense to at least try uh, those um, accommodationist routes to see if it satisfies China or um, quiets, uh, sort of lowers the temperature?
1: I Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I I, I guess that we, I, I feel like uh, this is kind of what engagement was about. Um, this sort of combination of, you know, the idea that we can... We, we want to hedge by sort of getting ready to contain China while also engaging them and trying to integrate them within the liberal order. I guess I have, I'll, I'll say two things. Uh, one is um, that I think that the standard by which we assess whether that works has been uh, flawed. Um, so in the t- 2017 NSS, the national security strategy that was published by the Trump administration at the end of 2017, they say engagement has failed or engagement has failed because, China hasn't become a liberal democracy. Um, I I think that's the wrong standard. The standard is whether China is a normal great power, right? Um, Whether it's kind of behaving like a responsible great power doesn't mean it has to be a liberal democracy. So I I, I think that's a problem. Um, The other thing that I'll say is I I just think that uh, if we're serious about accommodating Chinese status claims, it's very likely to be more costly than. Inviting the Chinese leaders to high level summits or exceeding in their desire to host the Olympics or things like that, I, I mean th- these are these are, as you say, sort of surface level um, uh, issues and they and they don't really cut to the heart of what distinguishes a great
0: power or a superpower from a state that's not okay, so that kind of begs the question. Uh, what does your work? Tell us about what makes sense to the United States and its posture towards China given these s- status competition that's going on if it were my job to answer that
1: question I think I would be getting paid more so what'll what I'll say is this uh, the middle path uh, the, the, the sort of middle path routes that, um, that uh, avoid the hard decisions are, are I think the ones that are unlikely to work so um, I think that um, uh, there is uh, there there are reasonable people who can argue either uh, that the U.S. needs to con- seriously contain China, um, defend uh, its allies in East Asia. These are its more, most important, longest-standing allies. Some of its most important, longest-standing li- allies in the world, and I am sympathetic to the argument, uh, the m- many arguments uh, in favor of um, staying the course. But I think that. Um, uh, that decision needs to be taken with clear eyes uh, and uh, 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 people making that making that argument uh, need to acknowledge that the result is going to be a, a deeply revisionist china and a and a probably decades long rivalry that's going to be expensive. Um, on the other hand, if you're interested in accommodating China, if you're interested in trying to avoid Uh, the emergence of a sort of deeply revisionist China. It's hard to see how that happens uh, while the U.S. maintains basically global primacy. I think that at this point, you know, I'm not advocating either approach. Um, What I'm advocating is a, a serious debate that acknowledges that we can't have our cake and eat it too.
0: I also want to uh, get in this question about a recent paper you wrote with Paul Musgrave about tripwires. First of all, why don't you explain uh, what tripwires are to the audience, what the logic of having a, a foreign base in another country is, um, and how? what do you guys find in the paper?
1: So. Um... Yeah, I mean actually the question about what tripwires are is is one that's that's uh, tripped us up with tripped us up with reviewers. Uh are uh, we're, we're actually not interested in the question of what a tripwire is. We're interested in an effect, right? So the tripwire effect. Um so the question is how do you deter? Um how, how do you how do you uh, set up a situation uh in which an extended deterrent threat that is a a, a deterrent threat that is meant to uh that that is meant to um Prevent aggression against an a partner, an ally, not against yourself, uh, is taken seriously, is credible, right? And so, uh, one way of doing this, um, uh, at least since the early part of the Cold War, has been to position troops uh, inside that partner or or near that partner's territory. Um, and uh, often, these are not large numbers of troops. Um, theoretically, uh, one might um, uh, one might Uh, achieve a deterrent effect by um, positioning enough troops to materially change the balance of capabilities. But often that's not what we're doing. Uh, Often what we're doing is setting up something that has been described by Thomas Schelling and others as a tripwire. So basically the idea is a thousand, couple thousand troops. um, And if the potential adversary attacks the host uh, and uh, comes into conflict with those troops or in some formulations kills them, um, what that will do is automate uh, escalation. Um, so the action can't stop there. An escalation by the, uh, by the sender, uh, the home country of the tripwire troops, uh, is virtually guaranteed. And the expectation uh, is supposed to deter the ex- expectation of escalation is supposed to deter. Uh, and um, people are not always clear about how exactly this works. Um, y- your own uh, writing, uh, among others, has been some that, that is unusually clear about this. Um, uh, and what Paul and I are interested in is this sort of domestic political mechanism. So uh, the idea is that even if you have a leader Uh, that uh, him or herself might be reluctant to escalate uh, after an attack on a tripwire. Um, The reason that this is especially credible is because domestic political audiences um, are likely to demand escalation uh, in response to an attack on a tripwire. And this is simultaneously cited as support for um, the uh, functioning of tripwires by their proponents, uh, and also uh, uh, by uh, critics, it's cited as uh, a source of unintended escalation, basically get drawn into wars that you have no business being in because domestic audiences um, demand escalation when these four deployed troops get attacked. Uh, and so uh, a couple of years ago, um, Paul and I just sort of realized that we didn't really know anything about whether this worked. Obviously, it's a hard thing to study. Uh, it's very much like audience costs where... Um, if the theory works, you don't expect to see a lot of attacks on tripwires, so we wouldn't expect necessarily to, to be able to observe actual reactions uh, to attacks on forward-deployed troops. Um, so what we decided to do was um, to field a, a number of survey experiments um, where we described kind of hypothetical situations where the United States had troops deployed overseas and then uh, describe attacks uh, against these, uh, these uh, host countries. Uh, and then vary whether or not uh, casualties were experienced, whether or not, and the number. So what we found was that uh, while there's a small effect um, associated with uh, casualties resulting from attacks on tripwires, wires, um, it's uh, it's uh, surprisingly weak. We think um, it's uh, not large enough um, uh, to sort of shift. Opinion from um, balance or majority against to majority in favor, uh, uh, we don't think. Uh, and it also only arises when relatively large numbers of casualties uh, occur. Uh, and so this leads us to be a little bit skeptical of at least the domestic political mechanism Um um, that uh, that presidents, for instance, would actually be driven to escalate because a domestic audience demanded it in response to an attack on a tripwire. It could still be, tripwires could still um, uh, for deployments uh, could still deter, uh, and um, it it could also still be that uh, uh, presidents believe uh, that domestic audiences would demand escalation in response to an attack on a tripwire. Um, and actually, that's sort of part of the justification for doing this project: is that if if leaders uh, wrongly believe that it's worth setting them straight.
0: So I remember a few years ago, there were several uh, U.S. soldiers who were killed in I think Niger, and we went through this uh, rigmarole of uh, you know members of the Senate. Admitting that they weren't even aware we had troops there and so on. And I suppose with the American people, uh, they're largely ignorant as well of where we have these tripwire forces throughout the world. And I don't recall a significant ground up um, push to uh, escalate that conflict. Of course, it's different than tripwire forces. Um, but if something happens on the Korean Peninsula or in Europe, that, uh, you know, I'm a little skeptical that the American people at this point in time would be gung-ho to escalate some kind of continental conflict. Um, And and therefore, the credibility gain that policymakers think they're getting from tripwire forces is uh, at at the very least dubious. Uh, You have to demonstrate that that might be true. And if this is the case, then is it does it make a ton of sense for us to spend lots of money maintaining um, a global military presence?
1: No, I don't think so. I guess wh- where Paul and I have come down, um, at least in the working manuscript, is that you you might want to you might want to use forward deployment um, uh, to bolster an extended deterrent threat. Um, but if you want to go that route, it needs to be a sort of substantial number of troops that can actually uh, change the balance of, of capabilities on the ground. Um, these, small, these small contingents, um, again, we can only speak to the domestic political mechanism, but we don't think it works. Uh, and, um, and there are real costs that go beyond um, that go beyond the, the financial cost of maintaining them abroad. For instance, there's other research that suggests that the maintenance of American troops in other countries reduces the willingness of, uh, the home country population, uh, to fight for their own defense, uh, and also might have a bunch of other effects, uh, inside that country. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, it's this sort of unexamined myth, um, that, that really, um, my sense is, Uh, uh, achieved the status of sort of taken for granted fact because Thomas Schelling wrote so beautifully and evocatively about it Um, and just hasn't been seen uh, as fit to examine until now. Um, Incidentally, there's other work, uh, uh, Mike Toms and Jessica Weeks, for instance, showing that alliance commitments absent the presence of troops actually do bolster domestic support for uh, for uh, escalation in response to attack. So maybe that would be a cheaper way if you, if you do want to maintain these extended deterrent commitments, that might be a cheaper way of doing so.
0: Stephen Ward, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure, John.